0: This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network, Mimo, and Quantstamp.
1: Oh, the emergence of Bitcoin and the role that it will play in monetary policy on a global scale. And that Bitcoin, for the very first time, offers us a choice of money that we can use. Whatever your definition of money is, Bitcoin does fill some of them, and it does offer people everywhere a choice. Up until now, we've all been stuck with what our governments have told us that we need to use. That's the biggest change. We don't yet know how governments are going to react. We're starting to see some more noise coming out from some of the regulators who are starting to realize the erosion of their consolidated power that this means. But does that mean they're going to be powerless? Does that mean fiat is going to be trusted less? No, fiat is convenient. It's convenient as hell. Bitcoin's not very convenient yet.
2: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought provoking analysis, Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
3: And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. If you put aside the healthy rebound in Bitcoin's price this week, it's hard not to feel as if the crypto industry is under attack. Regulators are sounding tougher signals on their concerns with Bitcoin and other crypto assets, and mainstream economists and so called no coiners are piling on. In one example, Senator Elizabeth Warren warned this week that allowing cryptocurrencies to take a more dominant position. In the financial system it would be at the whims of some shadowy faceless group of super coders. Crypto Twitter's meme generators had a field day with that one, but it did speak to a deeply held negative view of the industry among Warren and her ilk in Washington. Meanwhile, China is continuing its crackdown against Bitcoin and European officials continue to express concerns about shadowy activity in this sector. Much of this is familiar, Much seems ill-informed, or if you are more conspiratorially-minded, a deliberate intent to stop cryptocurrencies from disrupting the legacy system. But in my view, the crypto community does itself a huge disservice if it just dismisses these criticisms out of hand. In some respects, the community shares blame for the negative perceptions that have emerged. The behavior of a few tends to encourage outsiders to see the industry as rife with scammers, hedonists, get-rich schemers, and just flat-out fanatics. That's an unfair, broad-brush description, of course, one that maligns the vast majority of passionate, committed believers in crypto who are building innovative solutions to societal and economic problems. But it's worth asking if the kind of extreme behavior that stirs up these negative perceptions stem from something fundamental about the technology, or whether they are the unavoidable outcome of the inevitable wild west environment this highly disruptive concept breeds. And let's face it, there are legitimate criticisms of this industry, and they warrant attention. So today, we delve into the soul of crypto. We'll do so in a manner that breaks from our usual money reimagined format. We're going to take two recent, well-reasoned essays by authors critical of the sector and dissect their arguments. We'll consider what in them has merit and perhaps what doesn't, and what, if anything, are the lessons to learn. For this naval gazing exercise, Sheila and I are joined by Noel Atchison, the head of Market Insights at Genesis, which I must disclose is owned by DCG, the parent company of Coindesk, Before recently taking this role, Noel was Managing Director of Research at Coindesk. So let's get started. The first is a long essay entitled I Token, The Untold Story of the Hole in Bitcoin's Heart, by Brett Scott, a writer and theorist who focuses on the meaning of money. We'll put links to this and to the other essay in the show notes to the episode. So listen, I mean, it was a long piece. It's a classic Brett Scott piece. I don't know if you guys have read him before, but you know, he really, I think, intently goes after, you know, almost an anthropological look or even a linguistic look at, you know, what we mean when we talk about money, in this case, what we talk about, Bitcoin. And, you know, there's some really interesting ways to get at, I think, a core problem with Bitcoin. Is it money yet? I've always thought I emphasize the word yet. <laughs> like I feel like there is this transition that it's through. And that it would be impossible to come out of the gate and have what economists describe as the three qualities of money this unit of account, is it a a medium of exchange, or or is it a store of value? And that money really should have all of those three properties. And it seems to me that you just can't instantaneously have that without going through a process. He talks as if Bitcoin has adopted some of those terms and just applied them at will. And then, in his words, described the function of it rather than what it is. What exactly is a Bitcoin? What is this token? It's a compelling problem because you know, it's as if he's saying we're obfuscating we're sort of talking about what it can do rather than the fundamental structure of what it is. But at the same time, I've always thought money really is a function. I'm not sure it is a thing. Uh, one of the, the books that really you know, influenced me was Felix Martin's biography of money. And he just broke down the metalist argument of money, that it has to be this gold thing. It's not, it's a function. It serves this debt clearing exercise. In that context, it strikes me that every effort to describe money is something of a fiction, that you're creating these ideas of what these tokens are, when in fact, they're a stand-in for a process, a mechanism. But I might be you know, misreading this. So that's my initial thoughts on this. Sheila, what is your takeaway from this?
0: Yeah, well, I really enjoyed, you know, I think it's one of the better written critiques of the Bitcoin ecosystem, which I think is what it is the criticism of, is kind of thinking through, you know, this reality that anything that we deem money is basically assigned a societal cultural value that is held up by the activities of a group of individuals, entities, you know, shadowy super coders, whoever it is, that surrounds that system with information. And some of that information is uh, design, deliberate propaganda. Some of that information is very evidence-based, you know, but it isn't always easy to tell the difference. And so what I appreciated was that I don't know that Brett went into this parallel as much as, you know, others necessarily have. But this idea that we've talked about a lot on the show, that, you know, money is, is a meme. It's kind of one of the first memes. It has value because we have decided as a society it has value and Bitcoin is no different. I think because of the novelty of Bitcoin, because of the way that literal, you know, I suppose we call them memes, like internet memes uh, are so related to the price of Bitcoin and how the Bitcoin price index tends to fluctuate based on commentary from public figures or whatever it might be, whether it's Senator Warren, whether it's Elon Musk, whether it's whomever, right? Like there, you see that a fluctuation. It's very easy to track the comments that are made, the price, you know, adjusts. It's much more visceral. I think that that awareness but it is not different from the dollar, the pound, the yen, the whatever it is, which also have systems that are just so entrenched in our cultural consciousness that we aren't necessarily interrogating them in the same way. I took it as a criticism that could actually fairly be made in a different parallel article about the legacy financial system. That was what I thought I took away from it. All these systems similarly have this kind of work, let's call it, that's being done to support the value that we provide to these units of accounts, stores of value, medium exchange, things that we call money.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that you said there, Sheila. I'm going to tease some of them out a bit, though. And, and you both know that I actually love the philosophical pedantry that goes into a lot of the vocabulary that we use in our industry. I've often said that it's one of our big weaknesses. We tend to misuse a lot of words, and that creates constructs, that end up hindering us going forward. um, Let's pour one out for the regulators that not only are trying to figure out our vocabulary, but how to fit our vocabulary into their vocabulary and make some kind of Mm -hmm. sense of it all. I don't have a problem personally with defining something by its use. In the end, we define a glass by its use. It holds liquid. Now, the difference is we can make many, many glasses and the value is that it holds the liquid that we want it to hold. But It doesn't have any scarcity. Now, Bitcoin has a use. It is actually a technology. So, while it does have the value that we ascribe to it, it does also have an intrinsic value. It's a technology, it's a database method that enables you to transfer information from one peer to another peer without going through a central authority. That's an intrinsic technological use. For it to have a lot of value on top of that, yes, that's the value that we ascribe to it. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it has a utility underneath it, just like a glass has a utility, and we will pay more for a glass that we know happen to be very, very few of them or one that is particularly beautiful. So describing Bitcoin by its functions, I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is how we are all just accepting this definition of money that we are told is the definition of money. If it doesn't satisfy the three properties that we all know by heart at this stage, then it's not money. And I keep thinking, why? Why are we just accepting this definition? Why can't it be money if it doesn't satisfy all three? Why can't it be money if it doesn't satisfy any of them? Why can't an NFT be money? Why can't a piece of paper that I wrote from my notebook and scribbled IOU on it be money? Money should be the me. Money, as as you said, Sheila, money is what we deem it to be.
3: Look, this is the essence of it. The question is, how do you transition to... It being widely accepted, and and Brett zeroes in on the idea that the unit of account is the most important one in his mind. I think that's a really compelling argument, right? I I agree with you, Noel. Money doesn't have to necessarily have all those three qualities, but like if we're going to talk about something that is universally accepted, then I think it does have to become a unit of account. So that when I sell you, I'm going to sell you my laptop, and I say its price is, you know, one tenth of a bitcoin. Then we're just going to accept that to be the price, right? It's not I'm saying, hey, it's a few thousand dollars, but pay me in Bitcoin. Those two things are quite different. And so the denominating element there is the real challenge. I think until you get to this wide base of acceptance, it cannot be a unit of account, right? Except within a really small core of community for whom all they're ever going to want is Bitcoin. And so that's the challenge, right? So then how do you go from that small community to a wider community? And I think this is where the language tricks that both of you are talking about kind of come into play. And some of them I think do a disservice because they distract and they obfuscate. Others I think are just necessary, right? I mean, and to Sheila's point, all money has gone through this process. I probably overly quote Yuval Harari because I just feel like he really nailed this in talking about stories and human beings and civilization essentially is founded upon our capacity to tell stories. So essentially, fictions that we use as a framework to do things. And in his words, money is the greatest story ever told. What is a dollar? right? What exactly is a dollar? I just wonder whether it would ever be possible for it to serve the function that it does, ultimately also to become a unit of account, if we didn't have in our head this physical representation of a dollar, even though of course it's such a tiny piece of the actual money supply, that it has become ingrained. And so I think leaping into Bitcoin is difficult because people have got in their heads this need for something physical. If we accept that Bitcoin could be a valuable form of I money. and Brett's critical of Bitcoin on all sorts of other levels, but I think for this purpose of this exercise, he's not even criticizing that. He's saying "It might be, but how do you get there? What would be the right way to tell a story around Bitcoin such that it could be more accessible to people and they'd understand it? The "I don't understand this thing" response now, 10 years in is still the most frequent response you get from normies, because it's this leap what is this digital thing? you know? So what is the right story that, that should be told? Yeah.
0: And I think that story that we're trying to port over is the story of money. And so I, I'd love to just get back to Noelle, to your point, like, do we need all three medium of exchange, unit of account and store of value? Are all three necessary or does one or two, or, or are those even the right three? Are there other things? So maybe it's worthwhile just for those of our audience who don't necessarily think about money all day long, you know, mm-hmm. to talk through these three different functions of money, standard kind of understood functions of money a bit and how Bitcoin specifically is or isn't one of these things. And so maybe uh, maybe we start with medium of exchange, because that's kind of the easiest one, I think, for people to understand, which is when you think about a barter system, you're just exchanging two goods and you're kind of, I want this, I have this, you know, cheesecake or whatever. I don't really like cheesecake. I have cupcakes. And, you know, Noel has earrings and we decided we're just going to trade those things because I have more value in the earrings and she has more value in the cupcakes, whatever it might be. And so when money is used in this way, it's intermediating that exchange. So it's avoiding inefficiencies in this system. Uh, and basically what you're able to do is just because I don't have the thing you want, like what if you, know, you don't I don't really want cupcakes. I want earrings. You don't have earrings, but you really want cupcakes. Well, money enables me to... I get money from you instead of getting your earrings and I can go out and I can buy earrings from someone who has them. So it provides this alternative to a straight up barter system where you're reliant upon having the exact things that you want at the exact time. And it enables you to go out on the market and find other things that you want. So maybe I'll just hand it over, Noelle, to you that I think about you know, Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, because this is kind of one of the more recognized and accepted functions of, of Bitcoin. But I'll, I'll turn it to you to walk us through that.
1: Absolutely. And I'm going to take that and actually go off on a tangent, which you know I love to do. But, <laughs> but to, to that point, it highlights that we don't understand money. I think that is one of blockchain's best gifts it could have given us. And I've said this before, that it's not necessarily the answer, but it is a tool that enables us to ask better questions. I used to work in traditional finance and I thought I understood money. It turns out I was conflating money with numbers and I just, all I knew how to do was just move it around. To me, that was money. Money were numbers on my screen. And it wasn't until I discovered Bitcoin that I understood that I didn't even bother to question what we were doing. It was just what you do. And I know for a fact that my former colleagues and most of the people in traditional finance today are not asking those important questions, which in the uncertain times in which we live now more than ever, is a very, very important thing to do. It's only by asking better questions that we are going to arrive at better answers. We don't know what that is yet. Maybe it's Bitcoin. I actually don't think Bitcoin is going to be the money that we are going to end up using. We'll get to that, I imagine, later on in this conversation. But uh, going back to what you were saying, Michael, about the understanding what it even is, I don't. Hats off to you for what you've done at CoinDesk for convincing everyone to no longer use those stock photos of physical Bitcoins to (laughs) illustrate stories of Bitcoins. The noise used to drive me mad. And and this is a a shout out to all other crypto media, please stop using those photos (laughs) because all that they do is reinforce the idea in our heads that Bitcoin is physical money. And that may be easy, but we're not here for easy. And the more that we entrench that image, the more we're going to, in the end, confuse The readers that we are trying to introduce to this entirely new concept.
3: Good point. At the end of the day, like the way I think about crypto generally and blockchain as well, you know, is that it is the protocol system for value exchange that is needed for the digital age. And the digital age, by definition, is not physical. So maybe this problem is as much about how society itself transitions to an understanding of what digital means. This whole conversation around NFTs is part of this problem because people are like, well, like what is the NFT? They think of the art on the screen as being the thing. And of course the NFT is not that, it's a signed certificate of authenticity to the creation in a digital form of that asset at one point. And therefore people are sort of still grasping for that idea. Well, how do I take my Beeple and, and put it somewhere and do something with it as if it's physical? But remember the classic story of the rye stones. And by the way, Sheila, and we've only gone through one. We'll try to get to store of value in a moment. But um,
2: <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> rye
3: stones, which every, every time you go down to money, you start talking about rye stones and the island of Yap. And so, and I'm even not going to tell the story directly to allude to the one thing that struck me most about it was the story that you often hear people discover that one of the stones fell into the ocean and sank there. And it was still recognized as being a form of money held by the owner of that stone. And then you realize that these tokens are just tokens. They are not the money. They are not the thing at all. They are a device for recognizing. And by the way, if we can all agree that that balance is there, that this wealth is there, then you don't even need the stone. So you just need a ledger. You need something to keep track of that. And that ledger, by the way, just could be in your heads, as it kind of was in the case of the people of Yap. but it's going to get more and more sophisticated. So we need a recording device for that. And that's kind of what blockchain is. So ultimately, that's the functionality of it. And the token is this thing that we need as a, a mimetic device to then figure out how we we'll make these associations. I've often wondered whether the future may move to a world where there is no single form of money, that in fact, money becomes the protocol. You imagine a world where everything is bartered, but there is infinitely perfect pricing on that. right? It's it's an unimaginable world because that's the problem. It's like, we don't know what the going price of this table or this table is or what it is. But if you could imagine the level of bandwidth and informational power that could bring that together, then you could argue that there's never a need for an actual intermediating value in there anymore. It's just literally that I'm going to sell you a quarter of my table in return for a fifth of your laptop. And we'll all understand what that is. And that transaction of ownership will take place. And the protocol that's actually managing that in a decentralized way is the money, right? So there's like so many different ways you could twist it because it's all an invented system.
0: What I find so interesting about that though is, right, you wouldn't think it'd be such a psychological leap because anybody who's used a credit card or done anything point of sale, you know, you're not handing over the actual physical money anymore. That's just a, a relatively unusual transaction in certain parts of society. And people that are already in that world are the ones who are more prone to be you know, using things like Bitcoin in the first place, right? So you would think it wouldn't be this gigantic psychological leap, because certainly when I am swiping or chipping or whatever it is at the, you know, for the coffee, I'm no longer handing over the 25, $35 billion it now costs for coffee or whatever it is, But right? I'm not doing that physically. And in fact, when I imagine my bank account, I mean, I'm not really imagining that my name and a safe deposit box has the amount of money in my account and some, you know, robot or whatever is like taking the dollars and putting them in someone, that's not what it's all digital anyway. So I don't think, I I don't think if anyone pauses for a moment to think about their own accounts, like what they hold and whatever denomination that they're transacting in, generally speaking, dollar, yen, you know, whatever it is, pound sterling, that they're really imagining the physical movement of that paper and those coins anymore. So our need to almost rely on, to your point in while, those images of a coin that's metal and that has, you know, I like to think we can have a little more faith in, in some of the community to understand that that is not no longer necessary and the representation of it is actually what matters. And then I think is a good back into to segue. I think it's a unit of account. And so Michael, maybe you can take us all the way there.
3: Yeah. So we'll get back to store value after that then, right? So yes. unit of account, what's interesting i think brett scott would probably say is like you know okay it's not really the point about the tokens it is the language that it enables us to understand the value of this thing so if we didn't have a dollar as a reference point in this case a unit of account or if you're in switzerland what the swiss franc is telling you, you know i know in my head that there's more or less a translation i can do of what that what that is in dollars i can then start to make decisions about whether i want to buy that thing or not right and so that's really in some respects the most important functionality. And it's hard to see how that goes away, right? My idea of this protocol that creates perfect digital barter, how would you get there if you don't actually have this common language that I think the unit of account functionality has? So the unit of account is like, it is the thing in which everything is essentially expressed in its value.
2: There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network. The easy way to build multi blockchain, DeFi enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So, do yourself a favor and head over to UniqueOne.network now to learn more. That's UniqueOne.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio, open a vault, and access the power of blockchain through MIMO Protocol today at MIMO.Capital. That's Mimo, M-I-M-O, dot capital. After climbing 1,400% in total value loft last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit QuantStamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound and Barnbridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's QuantStamp.com blog to learn more.
3: I do want to throw it at Noel, but I just, why don't we just put store of value out there? Because I think this is a good one for you, Noel. I mean, this is where the Bitcoin community make the argument that that's the first use case, if you like, of Bitcoin. That in fact, it's a process that starts as a store of value and essentially becomes accepted for this. And then it moves into being so widely accepted for its value that you start to use it as a medium exchange and ultimately a unit of account. And that we're at that phase right now, and that the Bitcoin has that value because it is a proxy for digital gold. It is a digital version of this scarce asset that I want to hold. And that's a compelling argument. What Brett Scott says is that there's a confusion between the concept of price and value. Because uh, Bitcoiners will talk to the fact that the price keeps rising 33,000, know, 40,000, whatever it was just recently, got to sixty-five, And then that says, look, it's got value. But he'll say, no, that's price, that's not value. And so what are you holding as a store of value, you're holding this thing that has this volatile price. And yes, you've made money, if you've been holding it for quite a while, but I'm just not quite sure that's any different from thinking about gold in the same way, right? Because I think that I knew I'm going to hold gold is, is something that I think is going to hold a relative monetary alternative value to what my stocks are. And no one you know, would dispute that gold is a store of value. That's a widely held concept. So I always see that this is in a transition that of course it's volatile right now because that store of value process is still a long time to go before people accept it widely. And that Bitcoin is becoming a store of value. Anyway, I've spoken way too much. Noel, well.
1: We've often talked about Bitcoin being an emergent store of value. I mean, let recognized recognize that it's still very, very young. So an emergent store of value, much like gold, as you mentioned, like real estate, art, anything that we know is scarce and that we think 20 years from now, 50 years from now, will be Worth more than it is today in relative terms. Again, in relative terms, that's very important compared to the fiat currency that we all know is going to be debased. And that, to be honest, is my personal preference, my personal favorite use case of Bitcoin. I'll buy that a lot more readily than I will that it will one day become the unit of account. But when it comes to value versus price, I have two very quick points to make on this value versus price that I think you mentioned before, Sheila. Again, value, even talking, talking about value in the markets today, why are we wasting time doing that? What does value mean when you have interest rates near zero, when fundamentals no longer matter for prices? So again, that's a sort of old-fashioned conversation to be having. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm an analyst, unfortunately. You mentioned, Sheila, bolts, and this is fascinating. This ties into the physical representation that we've been discussing. It ties into the store of value idea. And it ties into something that I've been thinking quite a lot about recently. I mean, Genesis, one of its business lines is a custodian. And what many people do not get when you custody Bitcoin is that it is not sitting in a vault somewhere. It is not you know, a set aside for you because Bitcoin lives on the blockchain. What custodians are custodying for you is not your Bitcoin, they're custodying access to your Bitcoin. And this access takes the form of a sequence of characters, sequences of characters. How do you custody that? And this is especially relevant today when we have some of the world's largest custodians getting involved in crypto custody. And so many traditional investors like, yay, they understand custody. I feel comfortable and safe. What people don't get is that the fact that you are good at custodying bonds will make you good at custodying equities, probably because it's similar technology, similar rules. It will not make you good at custodying crypto because it's an entirely different technology. It's an entirely different mind space of what is it you are actually doing. And this ties into the confusing vocabulary swirling around the space. We're calling it custody because I can't even think of anything better, but it's not the same as custodying any other kind of asset. And most investors are still thinking of Bitcoin as a thing that you hold somewhere safe. And that can lead people into making some dangerous assumptions about security.
3: And I think part of the problem with that comes from the all important role that regulators play in defining what you can and can't do with assets as an intermediary and in how you interact with people. So they use the word custody and then that has to become the language that's then applied to what is ultimately a mathematical process, right? You cryptographically secure Bitcoin by building you know, all of these barriers around it, multi-sig technology and so forth. You don't literally put it in a vault. Although I did find it really fascinating that when Zappo introduced their like extremely difficult to break, uh, you know, um, custody solution, they literally put the private key in an underground vault in an old nuclear bunker in Switzerland and locked it up for ages underground. You know, that that was like we have to imagine the impenetrability of that to somehow show that it's like super safe. Let's move to the second article we're going to discuss now. I think that actually, you know, Brett Scott gives us actually an entry in there because, you know, at the end of his, his essay, he's talking about, okay, what is it that could help Bitcoin find its soul and, and restore this hole in its heart that he keeps talking about? And he thinks that maybe El Salvador has the solution because there, in a way, it's a government that's recognizing it as legal tender and therefore it's, it, it could just become a medium of exchange almost by dictate from, from a government, which, which I think gets us to this point where, well, is the only way to make this transition, is it the entity that holds a monopoly on violence? The state is the only entity that can actually force you to accept this medium of exchange. This is not to call governments violent. It's literally the definitions of a state. Again, we live in a digital society. This is a thing that's kind of breaking away from the nation state. So how would we build a governance system around that?
0: So, so Noel, kind of as as a seg over to our other article, uh, which is really more about government's engagement with crypto assets and should governments really just adopt crypto assets as national currencies? And is that a wise thing to do? And so the article on IMF blog really kind of teases out some of the, the cons really about that and suggests that that is really not a good idea. But I think at least this question, at least for me, which is who gets to decide? Who gets to decide which of these three things we've been talking about? unit of account, store value, and exchange, like who gets to define that and decide whether something meets those or doesn't meet those? And should it be the users of the thing? Or should it be something more like a government that has other responsibilities among the, not the least of which is, you know, security and safety for its citizens and, you know, all that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I thought so that this depends on who you are, how you answer that question. For instance, uh, while, as you mentioned, the role of governments to protect the consumers, they're going to do that that through regulation and regulation needs definitions. I mean, the basis of regulation is very detailed definitions, whether something is or isn't something that falls under this or that rule. So they need those definitions and they're going to rely on those, but the market is going to do what it's going to do anyway. We're seeing an emergence, the flourishing, if you like, of metaverse economies where you have avatars that are exchanging for huge sums. I was looking at some of the NFT platforms today. NFTs, pursuant to your point earlier, uh, Sheila, are a representation of value that is entirely imbued by us. We happen to really like this particular board monkey, or I I mean, I'm a bit behind here, and we are willing to pay $20,000 for it. There were tons of them changing value around about that time. But then if we exchange that for something else in a video game, That is a type of medium of exchange as well as a store of value. And do we have regulators defining this for us? No, we are defining this. We are using them however we see fit, and we are meeting counterparties, people like us, that are happy to exchange in the same terrain as well. So while regulators are going to need these rules, they're going to need these definitions, the market is going to do what it's going to do anyway, and the regulators, as we have seen, are going to be spending a lot of energy trying to play catch up.
0: Yeah, it's probably worth my just dropping in that Senator Warren and I are not related despite having the same last name. However, she was my professor at Harvard Law School, and she was the professor of my very first class on my very first day of Harvard Law School. So when I see her now, I think, wow, isn't it funny that we're both very differently involved in uh, the same space? But anyhow, your point is a really good one, which is that I think the market is going to do what the market is going to do. And it leads to this question about whether we're going to wind up inevitably with a parallel system where there is government sanctioned, let's call it, you know, money, uh, whether that has a crypto component to it or not, is a really interesting question. Not just in the US, that's getting most of the attention right now because of the activity that we're seeing and and the statements being made by various people, including, of course, Senator Warren. But that isn't going to have necessarily an impact on what kind of happens outside of that. And it may be, to your point, we already see thriving economies in gaming That, that is very much real the portability of those tokens or of those assets from gaming environment to gaming environment remains something that is nascent, I think. Like we're still seeing the beginnings of that kind of unit of account almost in a way, right? Like that kind of development um, there, I think is something that's going to be really an interesting thing to watch. But that is something that is that going to wind up being regulated. Are you going to be able to stop people from taking their, you know, I don't know, I'm going to reveal my their wand from one and they're buying their bow in the other, you know, just to give one kind of example. Is that something that's going to become illegal to do? Is that what we really want as a society? Is that something that's important? Now, it's one thing to say, can I take my wand and go buy my coffee? That's a bit of a different question. And that is where I think the government does see a strong interest in regulating or having a very strong point of view that determines what we are enabling to use as a unit of account. And again, just to make this very, very clear, unit of account is, something you denominate other things in. So you know that it's, again, $10 for a cup of coffee in San Francisco, perhaps $3 somewhere else that's not San Francisco, but you can make a comparison because the dollar is the unit of account across all those things. If you suddenly hand one denominated coffee, it might be 12 wands in San Francisco you know, and four wands in some other jurisdiction, but we don't tend to use these other kinds of things as a unit of account in large part because they do not have governmental support And there isn't a system that has been built around them that enables us to do that efficiently or effectively.
1: Well, actually, I live in Europe, and I remember when we made the change from national currencies to the euro, the unit of account officially changed from pesetas. I live in Spain, from pesetas to euros. But for about three or four years, prices were quoted in both. Why? Because we were struggling with the mental math. I mean, it was 35,000 pesetas, and now we're talking it's. 106,800. People didn't understand the mental maths. And so without having to, it wasn't requirement, prices were quoted in both. And the point I'm trying to make with that is that, again, unit of account can be what we say it's going to be. And if, for instance, your coffee shop decides to want to nominate things in ones, it actually can, but it's going to lose customers because it's going to be confusing. And this segues very much into the next article that you know, I want you to give us a summary of, Michael which is about legal tender, using Bitcoin, for instance, as legal tender. And this comes down to what even is legal tender. Legal tender doesn't mandate the use of anything. It doesn't forbid the use of anything either. If we want to denominate things in Bitcoin, we actually can. It doesn't make very good business sense for most businesses, as you know, the article talks about many of the potential risks of using cryptocurrencies as legal tender.
3: Yeah, this is from the IMF. We have two staff members of the IMF, Tobias Adrian and Rhoda Weeks Brown, and they're coming out and talking about this prospect of governments choosing Bitcoin or other crypto assets as their own national currency. And they're saying no. The title says a step too far. And the you know elephant in the room here that does not get a single mention of the article, interestingly, is El Salvador, which is doing just this. And it, well, at least it's not certainly choosing it as the national currency per se, but it's making Bitcoin legal tender now. El Salvador currently uses the dollar. It doesn't have its national currency, partly because of the failure of its previous fiat currencies. And to your point, Noel, it's not saying now mandating that Bitcoin has to become the unit of account, the denominator, but if under the the concept of what legal tender is, somebody looks to settle a debt with uh, Bitcoin, you are now obliged to accept that. And the government is supposedly giving a variety of mechanisms for the recipient of those Bitcoin to quickly and fairly efficiently convert them back into dollars if that's what you choose to do. But the IMF, Adrian and Weeks Brown are telling us that this is not a good idea because of the volatility associated with it. They talk about financial integrity could be undermined as anti-money laundering, all the stuff we've heard a lot about in in the Bitcoin criticism world. And the thing that gets me about this, though, is it's once again saying, look, this isn't going to work because Bitcoin has these qualities that don't meet the definition of what money should be. It's too volatile. It doesn't have this status of integrity that, that supposedly a government would impose on it. And it sort of establishes the ground rules around which you judge something. Okay, it doesn't meet those ground rules, and so it's out without, like to the point we were discussing before, opening up the question about whether or not that needs to be the definition and whether or not there is there's a transition as well that something could go through. So what were your thoughts on this, Noel?
1: I don't see Bitcoin replacing fiat ever. I know the article is not necessarily talking about that, but it is hinting at Bitcoin becoming national currencies, which does imply replacing, displacing fiat, I should say. I don't see that ever happening because why would it? Uh, Why would governments even go down that route? Even discussing it, it's a healthy article, actually, in that it does sort of shed a bit of, throw a bit of cold water on the excitement that many in our community started to feel when in Salvador made their announcement, the price didn't seem to move very much, which I guess shows a touch of realism. But So it's a healthy approach. However, it overlooks the main point of the emergence of Bitcoin and the role that it will play in monetary policy on a global scale. And that Bitcoin for the very first time offers us a choice of money that we can use. Whatever your definition of money is, Bitcoin does fill some of them and it does offer people everywhere A choice. Up until now, we've all been stuck with what our governments have told us that we need to use. That's the biggest change. We don't yet know how governments are going to react. We're starting to see some more noise coming out from some of the regulators who are starting to realize the erosion of their consolidated power that this means. But does that mean they're going to be powerless? Does that mean fiat is going to be trusted less? No, fiat is convenient. It's convenient. It's helped. Bitcoin's not very convenient yet. However, I was looking at the Lightning Network figures today, since the El Salvador announcement, the number of channels has ticked up, the amount that is stored on these channels has ticked up. Has it shot up? No, but then again, the technology is still young. There was a sea change, I think, what we saw in El Salvador, not least for the conversations like this paper that it has triggered, not so much the actual use, but that we are asking different questions.
0: What I find always so interesting about these criticisms, and this article, I think also has this, if I'm reading it correctly, is this idea that crypto assets have become the legal tender versus a form of legal tender, right? And so there's criticism in here that basically talks about how crypto assets are not necessarily as widely accessible as you would want legal tender to be, which is a very fair criticism of, Crypto in general, like the infrastructure issues that lead to limited access are not solved by, you know, however you create a digital wallet, you still have to have the ability to access that. And that is problematic in certain parts of the world. Nevertheless, to your point, Noelle, you know, it is fascinating to me that it's always posed as this all or nothing thing Bitcoin or fiat, right? Crypto assets or as legal tender. And I'm curious why you think it tends to be so extreme, you know, even from authors like here at the IMF, right? At least, again, I'm reading a little bit into this piece, but that just seems like a very odd approach to take, given that we know that in many, to your point, the pesetas and the euro, like for a period of time, there actually was acceptance in both of those currencies while the transition was made.
1: I don't think the authors actually believe that this is a viable option. I think that they're, it's an um, intellectual experiment, a, a thought a thought process that they're going through. And they're making the point that we need to be a bit more realistic about our expectations here. Why did the Bitcoin community decide that, yes, legal tender, this is the turning point? Because we're excited, because we have high expectations, because we're waiting for the sign that things are going to change. Finance does not change quickly in our terms. It changed, it's changing very quickly in relative terms recently. But finance changes slowly because there are so many interconnecting parts. If we were to suddenly have Bitcoin as legal tender in the most developed countries tomorrow, that would be because something really bad has happened. So it's not something that we should hope for. The world in which Bitcoin is the main currency is probably going to be a pretty scary world as well. It comes down to choice, the intellectual experimentation and the debates that are swirling around that right now are, are the main feature. And it's just the beginning as well. Bitcoin was the first, it's the largest, it's in what most of us believe to be the safest, the most secure, but it's not the only thing. Stable coins are going to be a bigger thing in individual transactions, retail level transactions going forward, especially with some of the innovations that's happening. And this debate is all happening against a backdrop of, Progress, progress, steady progress towards central bank digital currencies, which most of us now accept, are inevitability rather than a when, rather than an if. And and so, the why now? Because the macro confluence of events is converging on this becoming a reality very soon. And certain rules do need to be set from the regulator's point of view, and certain expectations need to be managed from those of us that are building this industry.
3: I wonder whether the the article though almost asks the least interesting question. I think it is exceedingly unlikely that a government would truly adopt crypto asset as a national currency again i don't think that's what el salvador is doing i think they're trying to find a way to get around their dependence on the dollar but at the end of the day the dollar they know is going to be continuing to be you know the unit of account the main medium of exchange and so forth and maybe one day they'll get enough recovery that they'll start printing their own money again of some sort i don't know However, the thing again that I think is most interesting about Bitcoin and crypto generally is that it is a new governance system for value exchange in a digital economy that almost by definition transcends nation states. Now it doesn't, we're all still bound by the rules of the governments in which we live, but we recognize that so much that happens in the digital realm is cross-jurisdictional, is transnational, is kind of borderless. And that because of the you know, identity challenges that come with that, and therefore, sort of which nation state do you actually belong to when you're on the internet? The classic joke on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Do we need a, a borderless digitally native form of currency that isn't beholden to the whims of any particular jurisdiction? And that doesn't mean that it becomes the currency of the world, but maybe that there has to be some unit of account that starts to exist within that digital system. A lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today is is like for the failings of the human brain, right? You were talking, Noel, about the mental math that was difficult to go from pesetas to euros. A highly powered computer or any computer for that matter just simply doesn't have that problem. It'll immediately make the translation, right? So in a world, for example, where micropayments are being made by just browser plugins around the world to pay for access to uh, different articles, and it doesn't matter where you are, you're paying some website, the producers are based in Macedonia, but you're in Thailand, the currency can become Bitcoin because neither you nor the actual website producer even thinks twice about the fact that the little sats that are being paid for this process are being calculated in a kind of a very general way by a computer. Outside of the challenges of, of a nation state and also of the human brain, there is this Sort of digital economy that functions at high speed with potentially sort of micro transactions of value. When we get into that realm, why couldn't it be Bitcoin or something like it that happens to exist in a way that's transcending that?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of different thoughts. You know, I think that part of what the money is meme or Bitcoin is meme, the consequence of that is that we are so reactive to what we perceive as an ecosystem is to be gaining traction with whoever the audience might be. And and currently the audience is primarily, you know, US regulators and US politicians, right? So the rhetoric around this topic area is kind of adjusting in reaction to what is perceived as kind of the most high value target audience in terms of the future of this entire technology. But over the course of time, we saw very different rhetoric when it was tech billionaires who were kind of the target audience for this. My hope is that at some point, uh, we will get back to focusing on users, user adoption of these various different opportunities uh, that exist within the ecosystem. Whether it's NFTs, whether it's Bitcoin itself, you know, whatever it might be, and thinking about when we go back to those three functions of money, which of those is actually proving to provide the most real-life, on-the-ground, tangible value to users of these systems, and how do we support with? The memes, the rhetoric, the conversations, the articles, the criticism, whatever it is, the further development of whatever is proving to kind of have the most value. Now, what I think is really interesting to your point, Michael, about the kind of wrong focus is how do you measure, you know, that value, right? Like how do you actually measure what is moving and what is it that we care about measuring? You know, and a lot of what we measure is, of course, we observe the Bitcoin price index and we say, oh, look, that thing is happening there. Look, suddenly it's, it's going in this direction. That means X, Y and Z to kind of loop back to Brett's article that only has certain indicative value. And that value is not really high when it comes to what I'm talking about, which is what are people doing with it? Well, the price is often quite unrelated to what people are actually doing with it. And if anything, it's orthogonal in some cases to what people are actually doing with it. So how do we get away from what we've anchored on, which is the price? And avoid doing that with the wrong meaning, right? Or assuming that it reflects the meaning that many of us actually do care about, which is not, you know, I don't know what the value of my account is looking in terms of fiat dollars, but how do we think about, you know, creating new metrics around that? And this is something, as you know, Michael, we care a lot about here at the farm. We're thinking about, you know, not just in the ESG context, but metrics in general. How do you demonstrate social value from these opportunities, which I think is what many of us believe, you know, financial inclusion is one very focused upon use case, but there are many others as well. How do we get to measurement around those opportunities to kind of demonstrate that this is actually improving people's lives, improving the state of the world in ways that are really important and will carry forward for generations?
1: And bringing this back to a very basic question that I deal with quite often, because I I focus on explaining crypto markets to investors, professional investors, and many of them from traditional type of investing. And that is, how can you have something that is a store of value and at the same time, a medium of exchange? If you're buying Bitcoin as an asset to put away in your portfolio for when you retire, why on earth would it ever be a medium of exchange? And my response to that is, well, why not?
3: Yeah, that's a fundamental question that it brings us to, to Gresham's law, right? This idea that bad money chases out good. The actual exchange is something that you don't want to hold. You want to get rid of it. So there is that tension there, Noel. It's a really good point. All right, listen, this is great. It was nice to be able to take some real thoughtful criticism of this space. And what I think is something that you said, Noel, that was really valuable through this is like, it's just forcing people to ask questions, which I think is what Bitcoin and blockchain just do. You know, I, I think Mark Hockstein, executive editor at Coindesk, his line that we've used a lot over here, I think is a valuable one is like, blockchain doesn't have all the answers, but it asks the right questions. And that's what I found actually, in many respects, the most fascinating aspect of my journey since I discovered Bitcoin is that how much it forced me to go back and ask questions about money and about these systems that I'd taken for granted. So thank you to you both for indulging me in going down that uh, rabbit hole yet again. We will keep going down on Money Reimagined on a frequent basis. So Noel Acheson and Sheila Warren, thank you very much for being with me today. Everybody stay tuned. Come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Thanks for being with us. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode features Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and Noel Atchison. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.